You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning. I wish there was more light so I don't have to see you as much. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to ruin Thad's whole plug about me being your children's pastor and how great it is, how great I am behind the scenes. So as I was preparing for this message, uh, part of this conversation is talking about tax collectors and tax collectors collect duties. And so I heard this guy that was talking about tax collectors and he word, said the word duties and all I could do was laugh. <laughs> if you laugh at that, you should join children's ministry with me. Uh, but no, I'm a, it's a privilege to be here and be able to talk with you and talk about, um, hopefully through this you can hear my heart about the idea that Jesus changes lives. And so first though, last week Michael Caine spoke so through this whole series that we've had different people speak, but I want to talk about Michael Caine. If you miss his message, you can jump online and uh, listen to it coming up, or uh, online. Um, but Michael Caine is an amazing man. Yeah. So you've probably been greeted by him. You might not know it. So you just try to find him. But So I met Michael Caine like, face-to-face uh, to conversation. It's been a while. It's, uh, it's four years ago, five, six years ago. It's been a while. But I remember the place I met, I met him at Thomas Hammer, went down and started to chat with him. And so if you were here last week, he told a little bit about his story about having cancer, yeah, bone cancer. And so I came to this meeting, kind of like a poor me attitude, uh, something like, there's something going on, I don't remember what it was, but I just remember this feeling of about poor me. And so I sit down with Michael, and he starts sharing a story about how his cancer is no longer in remission, he's going to chemo, uh, his bones are getting brittle because the cancer is like eating through them, and he is in the best mood I've ever seen. Like, what is with this guy? Like, I would be like, you'd have the right to be able to like be upset about it. But it wasn't because he was just in a good mood. It was because he had something different. That through this whole cancer, this whole chemo, and all this stuff, he had this trust in God that I want. His joy comes in. His joy comes from this trusting God. And so there's another story later on. So he was in a in-care rehab place because he broke his leg because of the cancer. And they had to put some metal into his leg. And so he was there for about a month. So I went to visit him. This place was depressing. Walked into his room. It's like gray concrete. Floors are gray. There's nothing, barely any windows, barely any light, it seemed like. And it was like, this would not be a fun place to live for a a month. But of course, Michael had different ideas. So these nurses, we walk in, and he starts to make jokes with them, makes them laugh, lets them know how much he cares about them. He spends a lot of time with nurses. And he came to the idea of like, if I'm going to be with these nurses who spend their whole life about taking care of other people, like, I'm going to take care of them myself and help them have a better day. So this dreary place, Michael brings light to it. So let me share this because I want you to know who Michael is. You need a Michael in your life. You need someone to encourage you. And it's a story that ideas forever change. Like God interacted with his life and changed his life. And through that, he's changing other people's lives because of it. So today we're going to look at the story of Matthew. Matthew, uh, in 
other gospels, he might be called Levi, but we're, I'm mainly gonna use the name Matthew. He's a disciple of Christ. He wrote the book of Matthew. Most people believe that. So one thing before I start talking about him, I wanna talk about Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. So one thing when you read through the gospels, one thing, question I wanna ask is, who's the audience? The author's writing to someone for some purpose, so who's the audience? So for the gospel of Matthew, the audience is Jews. It's a very, very Jewish gospel. It's written to the Jewish people. And so through that, you can do things like, okay, when Jesus talks, Matthew includes a lot of what he says that ties into the Old Testament. What's called a remez, the teaching structure. But you see a lot of that in Matthew. It's a little more easy to pick up than some other books. But one thing that's really interesting I find is we start off with a genealogy in Matthew. So if you're going to go on a date with someone, you dress up, you put your best foot forward because you want to present yourself well. So you think when Matthew would start writing this gospel to the Jewish people, he would put his best foot forward. Because lineage, genealogy is highly important. Like where you come from for that society is very important. So he's going to trace the lineage of Jesus. So you think he would include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you know, all these pillars of faith, which he does. But what he does, he starts to include these other people. They're like, why would he do that? So for one, he includes females, which for a patriarchal society is like, why would you do? Because that society is just the way it is. But you would, you would only include males. But he includes females. And not only does he include females, but he includes some like, females, some interesting stories. So we have Tamar. So Tamar's husband passed away. And so in that society, the, that husband's family should take care of her, and they don't. So what Tamar does, she dresses up like a prostitute, pretends to be one, to sleep with her father-in-law. I know, weird story, Old Testament stuff. Let's not do that anymore. <laughs> but it's a very odd, like, it's a weird story. Why is that included in Jesus' genealogy? Then we have someone called Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. We have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, not even Jewish heritage. But these ladies, these gals are in this genealogy. So the question is, what is Matthew doing? Why would Matthew include this genealogy to set up his gospel, to show who Christ is? My belief is that Matthew wants to let them know that the outsider matters. So through his gospel, he continues to have this conversation about those that think they're in are out, and those that are out are in. And Matthew sets it up is that this is not a new story. This is not something new, something different. Jesus is, or God has been doing this all along. And so we look at Matthew. Go ahead and uh, throw up verse nine, or chapter nine, verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Gary Hoppins a couple weeks ago talked about Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and did a really good job of kind of presenting who tax collectors was, her were. They are hated. If you ever want someone to hate you, what you should do is just take their money. It's really easy to do. And say, you have money, I want it, I'll keep half of it and give you half. Like Gary talked about, it's pretty common between the Roman government would take about 50 to 80% of an Israelite's money. 
So these are the guys that took it. They were not loved. And we have no idea why Matthew chose this profession. But we do know that he probably was ostracized by his family, no longer accepted by them. He was no longer accepted by his community. So like, we have a couple different groups in, uh, in Jews at that time. One of the groups is called the Zealots. The Zealots are the ones that would take up violence against Rome, fight back with a fist. The Zealots would see Matthew as a traitor. He was a traitor to his own people. We have another group called the Pharisees, who we see in this passage. And the Pharisees cared a ton about being clean, following the law. Because if they believed they followed the law more and more, better and better, then Rome would be taken care of by God. So when they look at someone like this tax collector, they were the reasons why Rome was still around. Especially since if you're a tax collector and you're interacting with Roman officials, you're interacting with people called Gentiles, you're going into their house, being involved with Gentiles means you're unclean. So they're living a life of being unclean. Not only that, the money that they were taking care of had Caesar's uh, face on it. So they're touching idle money all day long. So for those that wanted to stay clean, they would not be around tax collectors. Like these were hated people. Hated people. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus comes to this guy and says, follow me. A rabbi in that time, think of like the top tier celebrities that we have today. It's not hard for us to imagine that a religious person would be like a celebrity status. I guess we can think of like some of the people out there. But most of the people you think of like, if you think of like a professional athlete or musician or an actor, actress, like that's how people perceived a rabbi. It was a big deal when they came to town. It was a big deal when they taught. Now you have this rabbi and a rabbi would never, 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 I can keep going on and on, hope you get the point, choose a tax collector as a disciple. Because when a rabbi chooses a tax collector, or chooses a disciple, what they're doing is saying, that person can be like me. That person can become who I am. I see that that person will live life like I can live life. Why would anybody ever look at a tax collector and believe that? I love that Matthew includes his own story in this and doesn't leave out that he's a tax collector because he should be an outsider. But Jesus invites him in. I was curious what the disciples thought because probably they didn't like tax collectors, tax collectors either. But Jesus, told, Jesus called this person to follow him. Let's go ahead and finish the rest of the verse. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. The people at Matthew's house, it wasn't his mom and dad showing up, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. It was tax collectors and sinners. His community, that was his community because these are the only ones he could hang out with. But like I said, if a rabbi came to town, 
like you'd be there. And the idea with another person who was a sinner, that knowing the rabbi was coming to Matthew's house, where I'm welcome, like, I'm going to go see him. So they showed up to see Jesus. So one thing that we miss sometimes with our culture is, like, if there's a good meal, it doesn't matter who it is, you can go eat with them, right? It's good food, you can go hang out with them. But within this culture, if you eat with someone, there's something different going on. It's saying that you accept this person. So Jesus walking into that person's house, a Gentile's house, first it means he's probably unclean. And he's also telling them around him that I accept you, that you're in, that you belong someplace. And so in the end of the verse in Hosea 6, go ahead and throw Hosea 6, 4 through 6 up there, Jesus includes this phrase, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgment go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That word acknowledgement of God, so when I talked about Remez before, so when Jesus says part of this verse, he's talking about the whole piece of it. So a Jew would know what he's talking about. Um, they knew their scripture really, really well. What does it mean to have a, to acknowledge God or have knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings? Because how do you become right with God? You come right with God by offering a sacrifice. You come right with God by a burnt offering. That's how you become right with God. But God here is saying something different. Like what he desires is different. What he wants is different. It's a knowledge of him. So when we look at this parable out of Luke, just let you know, actually, the more and more time I spent with this parable, the more I disliked it. I'll tell you why. Uh, He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this passage actually bothers me a lot. Because sometimes like the idea of being taught about following Christ is that you do the right things. That's what's important. This Pharisee, in a lot of ways, is doing the right things. He's obeying the law. So there were 613 laws in the Old Testament that God gave Israelites. The Pharisees added about 800 more to those 613. That is a lot of laws. And so if you're a good Pharisee, that means you're following all of them. Every single one. So you have this guy that seems like he's doing the right thing. He's following all the the laws. He's checking off each box. I think we have our own list that you could probably think of for being in the church. I go to church every Sunday, check. I read my Bible once this week, check. 
I prayed when I needed something, check. That we have our own list of stuff. And the other side of it, the idea of being humbled. So a lot of times when I've heard this passage, it was almost like this idea that you need to humble yourself before God, which I believe. But it was almost this idea that you had to believe that you were a worm, that you're disgusting, that how could a God like this love you? You're dirt. You're not worth anything. I do not believe that's what the Bible has taught since Genesis on. It seems like God keeps letting his people know that they're worth something, they're valuable. So what is God talking about here? I was talking to my dad about this, and he brought the analogy of marriage. Sometimes a spouse will believe that everything's fine in their marriage because they're doing all the right things. Whatever list that is that you have separated, like the husband and wife to do, that they're doing it all. Like, so I think for my own marriage, the idea of, oh, I went off to work. I get home, I help take care of the kids. I do this, and I do this, and I do this. So I feel like I'm justified in my relationship with my wife. Now, does that make my wife feel loved? No, sometimes it's about the idea of spending time with my wife. It makes her feel loved. Actually caring about her, talking with her. Maybe this is why I don't like this passage, because like, that brings up something in me, like, oh, if you ever want to preach and feel bad about yourself, you should do that. <laughs> but there's a peace there. So in this tax collector, it's not that just sees humility, but what is he doing? He's seeking God. Because I would say, maybe not see God, but go actually do the right things. Maybe that's the advice I would give him. Just go do the right things but he's justified and he has mercy because he seeks after God. He is real with God. And through that realness, he's accepted. So my story is much different than my dad's. And so we're going to kind of share, dad, you can come on stage. We're going to kind of share our testimonies a little bit this morning because I want to give you a picture of, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter your history, your background, that there's a God out there that accepts you for who you are today. For me, love is shown by the idea of like, someone cares about me for where I'm at right now. Not about being good sometime later on, or the potential I might have, but they love me for who I am at this moment. So we're gonna talk about that. So, my life is much different than my dad's. Uh, my parents were how long have you guys been married now? 40-something years? 40, um, let's see, no, <laughs> 40, it'd be 43 years. This yeah, year. throw you on the spot. Where's, where's mom at? Um, <laughs> December 17th. <laughs> I, whatever. <laughs> and so, but how I grew up was much different, but I have my own story. So when I look at Matthew's story, the idea of a traitor, like that's what resonates with me. That there's something, even though, so my brother, was a little bit more rebellious. Like, he had to learn through his mistakes. Yes. Yeah. And so, I learned through my brother's mistakes. So, I was, you know, they call the middle child the, the rebellious one. So, I rebelled by being the nicest, the best son I could possibly be, yes. most obedient. Um, that's how I rebelled. Uh, but there's still something missing there. There's still something not quite right. And I'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. But why don't you share a little bit about your past? Well, um, I'm Steve. I'm Alex's dad. And the first thing I want to say this morning is that this is the, 
this is the first time that I've been, I pastored for 40 years. I was a vice president of human resources with Macy's. I worked a lot over the years, and but I, I love pastoring, and, and uh, this is the first time that I've got to speak with my son sitting together. So this is, this is really, it's really special. This is a wonderful, I actually, in uh, my daughter-in-law, Krissa, she's up here, and she, it's just fun to have family, you know, around. Uh, so my story is way different than Alex's. Um, you know, I, I, how you get somebody into a story, their life story, I suppose you just drag them into it. Uh, you know, my, my, my dad, by the time I was four years old, my dad had been married four times already. He has been married eight times uh, over the years. I have something like 20-some-odd half-brothers and step-brothers and sisters. And uh, my mom, uh, I met her when I was 40 um, for the very first time. And uh, she was an alcoholic. She was about 17, well, just turning 18 when she uh, had me. And... Um, and life was, that's kind of how my life started off. And uh, our family were uh, drinkers. That's, uh, we had a skill set. And, uh, and we were very good at it. Uh, I, uh, I picked it up about, um, about the age of 13 uh, is when I started drinking and, and then just continued on uh, with drinking and drugs and selling drugs and doing stuff in, in life. Um, home was not uh, really pleasant. I, I would go between moms, I would go back and forth between my dad's parents and my grandparents, the grandma and grandpa Little. They were wonderful people and they, they uh, took good care of me. But then dad would get married again and I would go off and be with that family. Sometimes the, those relationships were not really good. Um, like my fourth mom uh, hit me in the leg one day with a hatchet. You know, you don't, uh, you know, home was not, I, I have to tell you, I was a very rebellious child. There was a reason she hit me, but uh, um, probably a little bit over the, overboard um, looking back on it. Uh, but uh, so through life, so I started drinking when I was 13. I was, I graduated from high school with a 1.8 grade point average. Wah! And uh, rocket science was not in my uh, uh, future. So uh, in 1968, graduating from high, or well, I graduated in 67. By 1968, because of my great aptitude of of education, I got to go to Vietnam, and um, I did two tours in Vietnam, and through that, my drinking and drugs got more and more, came back to the States, and in about 19, so I came back in 70, 70 and um, in 1975, uh, I had come to the end of my life. I, I, I was tired, and I, I don't know if you ever have ever even felt like that before, but I had lied and stolen and cheated, and, and, and I, I, what I had shared with you today is like the tip of the iceberg, all the rest of it you don't need to know. Um, but I was uh, 
in Yakima, Washington, uh, in uh, April, about April of 1975, I was standing on a street corner. My hair was about this long. I had hair. I, just, I can remember it. Um, it was about this long. I had a great big Fu Manchu mustache. I weighed about 125 pounds, and I was like a walking dead person. And I remember this thing. My, uh, I, I, it just was one of those odd moments of life. And a young man, about 15 years old, came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around, I think I freaked him out. But uh, uh, he said, hey, mister, do you know that Jesus loves you? And he's alive. And I brushed him off. He probably thought he had his worst day of witnessing ever in his life because I was not very nice to him. And which it reminds me is that don't, don't ever judge what you say to somebody that it's not effective. Because I'm sure to this day he does not know, still probably his worst day of witnessing ever. And, uh, but from that day on, every time I'd turn on the TV, it would be about Jesus. Every time I would look into the horizon through a city, all I would see is crosses and billboards saying that Jesus saves. I'd be loaded at parties, and people would say, I wonder what Jesus would do if he was here. And I'm like, what is going on with me? I've never heard anything about Jesus, and now I can't seem to get away from this word, this name. And uh, a friend of mine, who uh, he, Marty Burdick and uh, I and a few other guys started a North Thurston drinking team when we were in high school. Um, <laughs> it was not our, uh, uh, you know, there was the athletic people and then there was us. And uh, still part of the team. Still part of the team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he uh, uh, and Marty had gotten saved. And oh my word. We would talk about girls, and he would lead it into a conversation about Jesus. We'd talk about water. We'd talk about drinking. We would, I would try to talk about anything, and he'd always lead it to Jesus Christ. But all that led up to August 10th, 1975. I sat down on the edge of my bed with a 22 pistol and a Bible, and I said, I'm done. I'm done. Something has got to happen. And... Uh, that night, I picked up the Bible, and I started to read it. And um, just like I do now, I fell asleep. And uh, <laughs> are we supposed to say things like that? Yeah. I don't know. It's real life. But uh, real life, yeah. Um, I woke up in the morning, and I thought, I'm still alive. i got to do something. So I'm reflecting all of this. I had a job, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go to work. It's a bunch of construction guys, they left you alone. And, and so I thought, I'm just going to go to work. And as I was getting ready, I heard a voice speak to me. And it said, Steve, call Marty. And I'm not kidding you. I thought at that moment I had gone crazy. I thought, I'm hearing. It wasn't out loud, but it was a voice. And about 10 minutes later, it happened again. And about 10 o'clock that morning, I was at work, and it happened a third time. And it was so loud the third time, it was like, call Marty. And I went, almost went, okay. And, uh, 
so I called Marty. He should have been at work. But that morning, the Lord, when he got up in his devotional time, the Lord told him to stay home, call in for a vacation day. And on August 11th in 1975, sitting in the front, I'd been drunk for two years, solid now. Sitting in the front seat of a car, Marty told me about the love of Jesus Christ. And I heard God speak to me, and he said, Steve, if you will give me one chance, one try, I will never leave you, neither will I ever forsake you. God knows the scriptures. I, I didn't even know that was a scripture. <laughs> and uh, as I was sitting there, I bowed my head, and I said, I asked Christ to be Lord of my life and to lead me. And he came into my life. I got in that car an alcoholic. I got out completely delivered. I have never had a desire to drink from that day forward. I wish he would have taken away the lying and cheating and other things that I did, but uh, he didn't quite do it that easily. But uh, on that day, Jesus changed my life. So I was pretty much raised in church. Yeah. I think you said earlier that you were, he was born at home, actually, in the house. In back, the back. back when was it normal to do? When it was not normal to do. We were too far away from the hospital to get him there. And so the doctor came to our house and he was delivered at home. He thought he was delivered at church. Yeah, might as well have been. <laughs> and so I spent most of my life in church. And so this is one of the stories I was thinking about kind of how to explain how I feel or I felt. Uh, was, I don't know if you ever read the book, like Left Behind, that series that came out. So I grew up in a church that their idea of end times is more similar to that. Uh, like a rapture would happen, that people who believe in Christ would be taken up, you know, blink of an eye, it would just happen at one moment. And so I remember one morning I woke up, and the first thing in my mind was the rapture happened and I was left behind. So when I get in high school, like, that's a really scary feeling. So I laid in bed and I listened, I couldn't hear anything. So my family was actually was gone, so they went around. Like they were taken, like look for the clothes on the floor or something. Uh, but I ran and, and turned on the news. I'm like, okay, it didn't happen, I'm okay. But having that feeling over and over again, the idea of, like even though I did the right things, like I went to church, I was involved in a youth group, I was led things, there's still something missing there sometimes in your life. Sometimes you feel like a traitor. It feels like you don't have everything together, like you should have together, you should be more humble, you should be more this, more this. And what I've learned, especially over the last couple of years, is that God just really loves you for where you're at. He cares about you where you're at today. Not about the potential you might be tomorrow, when you interacted with Matthew, the one thing you didn't go to Matthew and say, okay, once you stop being a tax collector, once you do this, and once you do this, and once you do this, come follow me. He said, follow me. You didn't have everything right, everything good. My dad didn't have everything together, not at all. But he was called by a God that loves him for him. Like today, God loves you for you. You're accepted where you're at. You're loved where you're at. 
I think about, uh, I, after the first service, I was thinking about the scriptures that you've used about Matthew, and then about the tax collectors and the Pharisees. You know that Jesus was offering both of them love. <laughs> the Pharisee chose to say, I'm sorry, I don't need really a relationship with you because I'm doing all the right religious things. The tax collector was calling out to God saying, I really need you. All Jesus was looking for was the Pharisee to say the same thing. I need you in my life. I need you to be there. And, uh, and I think that sometimes, you know, um, since I'm older now and uh, walked with the Lord this long, is that I've had to watch out for those things in my own life. You know, just to remember that it's relationship with God first, and then everything else. So in a moment here, we're going to take communion. So if you're passing out communion, get ready for that. By the way, we have an open communion. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you may join us this morning. We just ask that you hold the elements until the very end, and then we'll kind of take them together. So I have a few implications, and they're really not implications, more questions, it's the way I think. So you get to join me with that. But the first question I have for you, do you feel like you've let God down too many times? You're a traitor or an outsider? Do you resonate with that? That sometimes you just go to church because that's the last thing you can do. Like you're here this morning just because this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it. I don't feel like I should be here. I don't feel like I deserve to be here. I don't feel like God has a place for me. Because sometimes I feel like an outsider or a traitor. In what ways can you relate with a Pharisee's prayer? It's healthy for me to check over and over again to see where I'm at. I can get caught up with the idea that I'm doing everything fine because I'm checking off these boxes. And what do I lose? I lose relationship with God. Just the humility, the knowledge that I need him in my life. Whatever I'm going through, I need him. Best question I have is, how do you need to respond to what God's calling you to at this moment? There's other verses about God interacting with tax collectors or Christ interacting with tax collectors. Some of the verses are the idea of Matthew. It says, follow me, and Matthew left me a tax collector. Other verses are that it was said, don't steal from people. Just knock that off. Stop it. That's fine. Don't stop being a tax collector. Just don't steal from people that the process may look different for all of us. But some of the pieces, even like I think we talked about a little bit, even though our stories are different, there's a lot of things that are the same because God keeps calling us to relationship. How do you need to respond to what God's calling you to at this moment? What is God speaking to you? What do you need to share with him? Where do you need to be real at? So when I talked earlier about having a meal, that Jesus had a meal with tax collection sinners, this morning, we're having a meal. 
a meal that when every time you take it, when you look at it, remembering that God said, hey, you're accepted, you're in. Sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes it's like, oh man, I messed up this week, big time, or last night, or whatever that might be. But when you look at this, Christ is having a meal with you. He invited you to have a meal with him. He's saying, I accept you. I accept you enough where I was willing to die for you. Not to need to feel bad about yourself because of that, but because I am gonna do something that shows you how much I care about you. I will take that step because I love you. So we have his body, this piece of bread that was broken. Let's remember him. And then we have this cup, his blood poured out for us. Let's remember him. Jesus, this morning we thank you that we're accepted by you in the middle of whatever we're going on. Whatever is happening in our lives, that you are a God that loves us and wants to be there with us and walk alongside us. Lord, let's pray kind of through this next song that we can acknowledge that we need you in our life. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.